Good morning. Cold baked beans. I can't think of anything worse. Cold baked beans. Dreadful. You're a sadist, you know. Cold baked beans. Dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. I love you, Debbie. I love you, Debbie. <laughs> As most people know, we've been uh, travelling through the book of Joshua over the last, last few weeks and as, as has already been said we've reached um, chapter 20 the chapter that's about the cities of refuge and uh, again what uh, people have inferred already aren't they things, cities of refuge that are needed today needed today uh, especially in, in the Middle East Let's, let's have another prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to you, we ask that your words in your book, they may speak very much to our hearts. And as Debbie's already prayed, that we may respond in the appropriate way as we leave this building. We ask it in our Saviour's name. Amen. The cities of refuge were part of the... Ah, oh, here we are. The cities of refuge were part of the uh, distribution of the promised land among the 12 tribes of Israel. The map that you can see there shows, shows the distribution. As you know, these uh, 12 tribes were, were made up of the uh, 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob, who was also known as, as Israel, a name that means he who strives, he who struggles with God. You can read all about it in, in the book of Genesis, chapter 32. Only one of the tribes, the Levites, was not given any land. Instead, they were to be the priests for the Lord and the overseers of the tabernacle and all that that, all that, that involved. The book of Deuteronomy explains this in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse, verse 9. Let's see if I can operate this. How are we going? Ah, marvellous. That is why the Levites had no share of property or possession of land among the other Israelite tribes. The Lord himself is their special possession as the Lord your God told them. Now whilst the Levites, they had no land as such, their, uh, their inheritance consisted <coughs> of 48 cities. We, we read about that in Numbers chapter 35. And six of these towns were the cities of refuge. Six of the towns you give the Levites will be cities of refuge, to which a person who has killed someone may flee. In addition, give them 42 other towns. In all, you must give the Levites 48 towns, together with their pasture lands. If you read on in uh, Numbers chapter 35, you can see the rules, the rules in detail for their use. You know, the Mosaic law was, was very severe. Anyone who committed a murder 
was to be summarily put to death. But as for unintentional death, I suppose we might call that manslaughter today, the crime of causing the death of someone without meaning to do so. God set aside these cities to which the accused could flee until the case could go to trial. Anyone who assaults and kills another person must be put to death. But if it is simply an accident permitted by God, I will appoint a place of refuge where the slayer can run for safety. The background to this was the practice that someone who had been intentionally killed, murdered, the closest relative was allowed, in fact it was even his duty, to avenge the crime by himself killing the murderer. The person was known as the Avenger of Blood. Pretty, pretty gruesome title, isn't it? The Avenger of Blood. It's almost something out of a Peter James novel. The Avenger, the Avenger of Blood. In order that this rule, this practice, might be guarded against abuse, Moses appointed these six cities of refuge. They're referred to in a number of other books in the Old Testament, in Exodus, in Numbers and Deuteronomy. And of course, in the passage that we've just read in Joshua chapter 20. The Mosaic law regulated the actions of the avenger of blood by providing these cities of refuge for the accused. In these towns, the avenger of blood's target was legally, legally protected to await a fair trial. Allow me to, uh, to digress for a moment. When I was a teenager, I attended a covenanter class in the church that, uh, that I went to. The Covenanter Association was a Christian youth organisation, I expect many of you know that already, that merged with the Crusader organisation, which then in due course changed its name to Urban Saints. Um, and I think that was probably in view of the unease that the Muslim community might feel. They became urban saints. You know, the, the, the Muslims at that time were very uneasy, as they are today, about anything which suggests that uh, they were fought with in the Crusades in the Middle East uh, in the 10th and, and 12th century. At the time when I belonged to this Covenanter group, we had a, what was known as the Covenanter Chorus. Is anyone here that uh, remembers that? No, I'm the only person. At the Covenanter Chorus. And it was based on the well-known verse in the book of Joshua, chapter 1. I'll read it in the somewhat dated King James Version, which was the one that we had at the time. I think I'm going the wrong way. Hell. Only be strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Have I not commanded thee be strong and of, good, of a good courage? Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed for the Lord thy God is with thee, 
whithersoever thou goest. You know, it occurs to me, I wonder if, uh, although it's in dated language, I wonder if that sense of peace that you experience, that you experience knowing that the Lord, our Heavenly Father, is with you, to, to use that dated language, whithersoever thou goest, the Lord is with you. The covenant of chorus went like this, Be thou strong and very courageous, for I have commanded thee, be not afraid, be not dismayed, thou shalt have victory. I will be with thee, whate'er be time, captain and leader, friend and guide. Now, boys being boys, one of the wags in the group provided a parody to that opening line with these words, Be thou weak and very contagious. <laughs> be thou weak and very contagious. And at the time... I thought that that was uh, rather bad, rather irreverent. But you know, as time's gone by, and I've reflected, perhaps unknowingly, there was some truth in that parody. What was it the, uh, the Apostle Paul said to his friends at Corinth? When I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, when I acknowledge my own weakness living the life all to myself in my own strength and abilities, then I'm really fooling myself. I'm really fooling myself. Paul wrote that truth down as a response to his own problems, even the uh, debilitating illness that he suffered. Let me quote the whole context. It's in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. This time I'll, I'll read it from uh, the English Standard Version. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Powerful words, aren't they? Easy to say, but perhaps not quite so easy to actually put into practice. Let's pray to God that uh, his spirit may ignite that in our lives. To quote those wonderful words of Joshua again in chapter, chapter 1. Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. That, uh, that parody of my covenant of friend, be thou weak, also use the phrase which I've just used, be thou weak and very contagious, and very contagious. And you know, in essence, that encourages us to be so filled with God's spirit in our lives that people, God's spirit working in our lives, that people can't help, can't help to be affected by our Saviour. Now that's quite a challenge, isn't it? The thought that we should be contagious Christians. A number of Christian writers have actually written books which have entitled Being a Contagious Christian. But back to those cities of refuge. You know, the cities of refuge can allude to the reality, the reality of our forgiveness and salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The writer of the book of Hebrews puts it like this. God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that absolutely wonderful? Wonderful word. Let me, let me read it again. God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Great confidence. Great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. Because, to use Paul's famous words, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have found their refuge in our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, it does beg the question, doesn't it? Are you in Christ Jesus, with your sins forgiven, because of Jesus' sacrifice at Calvary? Have you made that step of faith? I had a landmark birthday several weeks ago. It's one of those occasions when you uh, reminisce on the past, like putting the clock back. Um, when you reflect on those times of, of pleasure uh, and happiness, but also perhaps times of, of regret, when you'd uh, acted or, or said something which uh, you wish you hadn't. I wonder if you ever feel like that. If you ever feel like that. You know, when we do, we can take courage and encouragement from the Apostle Paul's words in his letter to the church in Philippi. I don't mean to say that I've already... That's not it, is it? I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things, that I have already... <coughs> ah, do you think that's right? No? I'm giving you advanced... Uh... Can you turn it off for a moment, please, uh, Andy? You know, when we do have those feelings of, of regret, you know, this is, what, uh, this is what Paul said. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling me. 
press on, press on to the heavenly prize which God is calling to. For those people of Joshua's time, you know, who found themselves targeted because of some misdeed that they had committed, whether it was intentionally or uh, more likely unintentionally, those cities of refuge were such a vital and safe haven to escape to. But of course they had to recognise, they had to recognise their own need in the first place. You know, you know, for us, for you and me, it's only when we too recognise our own failings, when we recognise those sins in our lives that Andy highlighted a couple of weeks ago, it's only then that we can realise and experience the wonder, the wonder of finding our refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we don't like to think of ourselves as sinners, do we? We don't like to think of ourselves as that. I, uh, I pay my taxes, I'm a, I'm a friendly sort of a guy, I'm good towards uh, people, seek them no harm. In fact, most of the time I, I seek them all good. Well, of course, that's, that, that's great, isn't it? But you know, under the searchlight, under the searchlight of God's ultimate purity, who can claim to be perfect? Who can claim to be perfect. How did the psalmist put it? Is it Psalm 24? I wonder if we've got it here. No, I don't think so. No, we'll come to that in a minute. The psalmist put it like this in Psalm 24. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. You know, it seems to me that it's a, a brave person, even an arrogant person, who can honestly claim without exception to have clean hands and a pure heart. You know, the Bible doesn't, uh, doesn't mince its words, does it? The prophet Isaiah spoke very powerfully about the human condition and the human failings. Listen to this, Isaiah 64 and verse 6. It's quite a, quite a famous verse and I suspect most of you know it. All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. That's pretty, pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? Pretty powerful stuff. Paul perhaps puts it a little more simply. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So as a direct consequence, there's a, a huge chasm between us and all-powerful, almighty and perfectly holy God. But it's a chasm. It's a chasm that Jesus has bridged for us through his sacrificial and substitutional death at Calvary. Whereas Paul put it, God made him, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I look back at some notes that I wrote the last time I spoke here, and I quoted that verse then. But you know, it is worth repeating, perhaps repeating time and again, the wonder, the mercy, the compassion, the love, 
the grace of our Lord. You know, don't let's ever forget that. Don't let's treat it too casually. God made our sinless Lord, our sinless Saviour, sin for us. Amazing truths. Amazing truths for each one of us in those words. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That grand old hymn puts it. It is a thing most wonderful, almost too wonderful to be, that God's own Son should come from heaven and die to save a child like me. And yet I know that it is true. He chose a poor and humble lot and wept and toiled and mourned and died for love of those who loved him not. You know, our Lord is such a, such a loving and forgiving God when we come to him in genuine regret and sorrow. And when we do that, he receives us as the loving Heavenly Father that he, is, that he is. The parable of the prodigal son illustrates that, doesn't it? So well. You know, when we seek refuge in his presence, we find peace and security that only he can give. You know, it's a, a unique peace, a unique peace, a spiritual peace, a peace that looks forward to a home in eternity in glory with our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if that, is, the, is that the kind of peace and security that you experience? There's a hymn that's regularly sung on BBC's Songs of Praise. And the first verse is really a prayer that you know we should all pray. Dear Lord and Father of mankind, Forgive our foolish ways. Reclothe us in our rightful mind. In purer lives, thy service find. And deeper reverence praise. You know, don't ever think that you have wandered too far away from our Heavenly Father to be forever lost. You know, you can never, never be outside of the reach of his loving arms for the refuge that he supplies. In a few moments we're going to sing another grand old hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. All other ground is sinking sound. Again words from another parable of Jesus. Here are a couple of verses from that hymn. I wonder if we can get it up on the board. Ah oh, yes, marvellous. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Now I wonder, I wonder what foundation for your life you're standing on. Have you found that perfect refuge in him? 
And for those of us that have found and experienced that refuge, how are we using that? How are we using that peace and security that our Lord gives us? How are we using it in his service? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful stories in the Old Testament of your dealings with your people. We thank you for the refuge we can have as a result of what your Son achieved for us at Calvary. Help us never to forget that or treat it too casually. I wonder if we could have a moment of silence, perhaps you'd like to close your eyes and just reflect on the refuge we have in our Lord Jesus Christ.